Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. On the show today, we are hosting a discussion on male infertility and men's health. Joining us today is Akanksha Shameta, Associate Professor, Residency Program Director in the Department of Urology, the Emory University School of Medicine, and Michael Eisenberg, Director of Male Reproductive Medicine and Surgery, Men's Health, and Associate Professor in the Department of Urology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Thank you both for being here today. Dr. Mehta, I will now turn things over to you. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Um, I'm really excited to be talking to Mike Eisenberg today. We will be discussing the intersection between male infertility and somatic health. And this is definitely a topic where Dr. Eisenberg is a subject matter expert. So Mike, let's start off uh, discussing uh, the association between male infertility and chronic medical conditions. Um, much has been published about how medical conditions like obesity, diabetes, sleep apnea have an impact on male infertility. What are your thoughts about male factor infertility being a predictor for the development of these conditions in a patient who's otherwise healthy? Uh, yeah, thank you, Akanksha. It's certainly great to be here and, and really great that we're talking about this. I think men's health is certainly an important focus. And reproduction, I think, is very much linked to you know, men's overall health. So I think it's, um, it's sort of a key point here. Now, anytime we talk about sort of this link between fertility and how it looks to the future and how it may tell us about you know, other diseases the man may be at risk for or his health trajectory, I always like to take a step back and just think about how health and Fertility are very much linked in the current moment as well, because really, you know, a healthy man is also sometimes dictates how fertile he is. You know, there's a lot of examples of that. And I also always kind of think about why this two may be linked. And there's sort of um, several hypotheses that have been put forward about why this link may exist. And so usually uh, the first one that's proposed is a genetic explanation. So we know that probably about 10% of the male genome is devoted to reproduction. And given the fact that there's only about 24, 25,000 genes in the body, it makes sense that, you know, some genes that operate in reproduction may also operate in other organ systems as well. And so you can imagine if that gene is not working well in the reproductive system, there may be other health consequences as well. So again, there may be some genetic links. The other um, proposed etiology is hormonal. So infertile men on average have lower testosterone levels than fertile men. And testosterone has also been linked to health trajectory as well. We know that men that have lower testosterone levels, you know, seem to have a higher risk of, you know, chronic diseases, even mortality in some studies as well. So that may also provide the link. There also may be sort of developmental or in utero factors as well. You know, the developmental origin of disease or uh, the Barker hypothesis. And so a corollary of this uh, suggests that, you know, different sort of factors or insults, you know, can lead to testicular dysgenesis, which can impair sperm production, may also lead to higher risk of, you know, other, you know, genital disorders. And other studies have shown that, you know, these developmental insults may lead to chronic diseases in men, you know, heart disease, diabetes, et cetera. So there may be a unifying theory there. And then another really kind of key component here is this sort of this health factors. So there are like conditions that affect health, but also affect fertility that we know directly, like obesity, which you mentioned, 
So we know that, you know, obese men have higher risk, uh, mortality, diabetes, you know, heart disease, et cetera. Um, but obese men also have higher risk of having lower sperm counts, for example. And there was a really elegant study done a number of years ago that just looked at a group of infertile men and compared them to a group of fertile men and found that infertile men on general had higher risk of chronic medical diseases, just at baseline. And so that really suggests that, you know, there may be some underlying diseases. Now, I think, as you pointed out, you know, these are reproductive age men, you know, in their 20s, 30s and 40s. And in general, they're very healthy, or at least they think they're very healthy. And so, you know, if there are some markers maybe that we can see earlier about, you know, prediction of later health events, then I think that may be really an opportunity uh, to try and understand. So there have been some studies to look at some of this sort of longitudinal follow-up on these infertile men to see what risks, uh, you know, they may be, um, you know, what sort of diseases they may be at higher risk for. And, you know, like you pointed out, I think there's certainly evidence that there could be some metabolic diseases like diabetes higher risk of heart disease, higher risk of peripheral vascular disease have been studied. And even there have been studies to show that, you know, men with lower sperm counts may be at higher risk for uh, death as well, you know, kind of the, the ultimate outcome. And I think, you know, kind of getting on this sort of topic of cancer as well, another very, you know, uh, important chronic disease, there have been studies that show that infertile men may be at higher risk of cancers too. You know, male cancers like testicular cancer, prostate cancer has been studied but other cancers as well. I mean, sort of the broad look at all cancers, for example, and then specific cancers like lymphoma. Um, you know, there have been a handful of studies to, to demonstrate that as well. So I think it's sort of an important aspect to think about. And hopefully as we kind of continue to talk, we can sort of think about, you know, the implications of patients in our clinic as well. Yeah, I think that's really, you know, valuable insight. Um, and I do want to get into the details of what you just mentioned. I wanted to ask you before uh, we move on too far off the broad topic, whether you think environmental factors play a role here as well and what their contribution is, because I feel like environmental toxins and exposure to um, environmental factors are becoming increasingly a bigger problem for our patients, whether they recognize it or not. I think that's really key. And I think it sort of depends what bucket you put that in, you know, whether it's sort of lifestyle, you know, current health, you know, you know, current exposures, how you, you know, sort of have lived, or, you know, you could also put that into the developmental bucket as well. Right. And I think that, you know, when men, I'm sure just like they ask you, they ask me, you know, why is my sperm count low or why do I not have a sperm count? And a lot of times we can't really answer, but uh, you know, one of the possibilities, certainly it could be in an utero exposure. And, you know, what that is, again, it's going to be very difficult current, the current time to be able to identify it. But it may be that some, you know, gestational exposure led to, you know, disorder of genital development, which led to these lower sperm counts or absent sperm counts. Um, but it also may be, you know, during puberty or, you know, kind of during some point in life, some of these exposures may have arisen and may lead to, the, you know, these infertile phenotypes. Uh, you know, certainly there have been documented cases of certain pesticides from certain professions causing impaired fertility. So I think there are certainly adequate examples of that. Uh, and I think it's, you know, sort of on us as investigators should try and understand and synthesize to the extent possible of things that, you know, men and couples should, should try and avoid. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you hit an important point as to what you say to the patient when they ask you, you know, why is my sperm count low? Why do I have X, Y, or Z um, numbers on this particular analysis? 
So when you are seeing a patient for the first time in the clinic, for example, how are you counseling them about their overall health and the impact that that may have on their reproductive potential? What are some of the pearls you are sharing with your patients? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of this, I don't want to be alarmist about any of this. And I certainly don't want to, you know, tell a patient that because his sperm count is X, you know, his risk of having this condition is elevated a certain amount. Because I think we really don't understand this association, how we can, you know, necessarily change the trajectory or why this association exists. Um, but I just try and give good health advice, you know, broadly. So, you know, we talk about, you know, good diet, exercise. I think those are certainly very key points. I think most people probably understand that. And it may be that hopefully for some individuals, reproduction can kind of be the carrot that'll put them over the edge to try and make these, you know, important, you know, lifestyle changes, you know, rather than eating fast food, you know, maybe, maybe eating something a little bit more nutritious, uh, you know, may make a difference or, you know, to get into an exercise routine, for example. So I think all those are, are important, you know, for patients that, you know, drink to excess, smoke. I mean, we talk about those as risk factors as well. And then for patients that really aren't connected to the health system, you know, for example, I'm the first doctor that they've seen since, you know, they saw their pediatrician a decade ago, or maybe the first doctor they've seen ever, you know, I try and get them plugged in with a primary care doctor to check other things that we know are important, you know, blood pressure monitoring, cholesterol, you know, fasting glucose, all those things, you know, that are very important, you know, in terms of chronic disease identification or prevention. Uh, so those are sort of the, the general health guidelines that I try and give men. I, and I try not to again, scare them about any of this, but we certainly do talk about overall health and how that may improve their current status. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think you make a really important point there that, you know, men in general do not seek out medical care, preventative health or otherwise um, with the same frequency that women do. So for many men coming in for a fertility evaluation, that is their first interaction with the healthcare professional in a long time. Um, and it's a unique kind of window of opportunity for us as physicians to talk to them about all of the other health screenings, preventive health measures, um, health education that they may have missed out on that their female partners have been getting all along because they have been more connected uh, to the healthcare system. Um, you mentioned that you will often try to get them uh, connected with a primary care physician uh, and talk to them about general overall health. I certainly do the same. What are some kind of system-based ways that we can enhance that perhaps at the perhaps at the institutional level or even broader, you know, public health measures? Where do you see this being uh, going in the future? That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think kind of thinking about how we can sort of turn this link between fertility and health into something actionable, I think is important. I mean, I think it starts with education. I think just sort of to alert everybody, I think, you know, sort of different incentives will drive different people. So, you know, I think for couples thinking about, you know, reproduction or starting a family, I think it's important information and certainly can make that journey a little bit easier. And I think there's also evidence now that, you know, the health of the father also impacts the pregnancy trajectory as well. The health of the child, you know, having a lower risk of preterm birth, for example, you know, a higher risk of just a healthy infant, you know, the healthier the father is. So I think those also may be hopeful incentives that we can use as well and just, you know, teach from an education standpoint. I think trying to partner with, you know, our primary care colleagues as well, you know, and just, I think just trying to remove friction from some of these things. You know, I think that 
we're all live busy lives. You know, obviously, I think the pandemic has certainly, you know, made some things harder, some things easier. Um, but just trying to figure out, you know, why patients maybe don't want to go to the doctor, what's prevented them, you know, whether it's location, you know, difficulty with scheduling an appointment, et cetera. And then, you know, to the extent possible, maybe having our, you know, clinics being able to facilitate that, you know, at the front desk. At our institution, we're able to, you know, schedule patients into primary care clinics. So that makes it just, again, a little bit easier, sort of one-stop shopping. You know, also sort of geography is important too, where patients live, where the primary care offices are located. I mean, you know, just like you and I, you know, we have maybe one or two clinics around town, but primary care clinics are strategically located all over. So kind of understanding what neighborhood patients live in, what the best site of access may be, uh, is another, you know, potential opportunity as well. Yeah, I think a challenge for all of us to think about, you know, barriers in terms of access for our patients' geography, as you mentioned, or time constraints, just ease of scheduling is a huge barrier, um, not having to make that second or third phone call. So I think all of those are really key ideas. You know, one of the things that was uh, noticeable to me when the new AUA ASRM joint guidelines came out on, or the updated version came out in October of last year, was that there was this tremendous emphasis on early evaluation of the male partner, but also, as you mentioned, the contribution of that paternal um, genome and paternal health, paternal age to development of the embryo and health of the future offspring. Where, where do your sort of, or how do you counsel patients about advanced paternal age, for example, or health conditions that they have uh, and that impact on their offspring? Because I'm sure your patients are asking you these questions as well. Yeah. You know, I think when we think about reproduction, I think, well, you and I certainly probably think different than most people, but generally, you know, most probably think about the woman. And I guess, you know, it certainly makes sense. Obviously, pregnancy has a tremendous impact and probably, I certainly don't want to discount it, but probably the larger impact compared to the man. But, you know, the man contributes half the genome. So it certainly makes sense that there are going to be some powerful influence as well. And I think, you know, over the last, you know, few years, we've started to see more and more data come out about the importance of that. And I think as we're sort of accumulating this information, you know, starting to use it to engage couples and engage men a little bit more. So, you know, as you pointed out, the new guidelines came out, the AUA SRM guidelines, and did look at some of these risk factors and ways to counsel. So, you know, I think in terms of paternal age, it's a discussion that I certainly have. I think it's always a question of what you consider an older father, right? The oldest father ever, I think, was like 95 or 96. So I haven't had any patients nearing that to set a new record. But, you know, the biologic potential certainly persists, <laughs> certainly persists for a while. So, you know, I think it's probably sort of a, a continuum or a spectrum of risk. And I think we certainly discuss this. Now, most of these risks, I think, are are fairly rare. You know, we talk about like these rare conditions like achondroplasia, for example, or other neuroskeletal disorders, you know, the risk goes up slightly. So I think I try and sort of couch this in this discussion of absolute risk versus relative risk. So as men get older, the relative risk of these conditions definitely increases, but these are very rare conditions, right? And so the absolute risk doesn't really change. So the, I think the analogy I usually use is like the lottery. Like if you buy two lottery tickets, your chance of winning doubles, but it's still probably not going to happen. So obviously these events are not anywhere close to as rare as winning the lottery, but I think it helps people sort of understand risk a little bit. And in general, I think most men don't want to trade biologic relatedness 
for these sort of low probability events, sort of this risk of low probability events. But it's certainly something that we discuss, and we also talk about health. And I think you know, that's something that's actionable. Obviously, paternal aid is not necessarily actionable, especially when we see these patients trying to have a baby. I mean, I think that discussion hopefully could start, you know, just like, um, you know, we take kids for these sexual education classes, you know, in, you know, very early, you know, late elementary school or middle school, that sort of time frame. I think it may be, potentially you could start to talk about, you know, some of these reproductive aspects as well um, from the male side. And just, you know, I think men are used to maybe thinking about their, um, their timeline is unlimited. And I think to some ways it could be perceived like that, but again, there may be risks that go up um, in the short term. So to think about, you know, reproduction maybe a little bit earlier as well. So I think it's, again, I think talking about age is a little bit challenging again, because there's not a lot patients can necessarily do about that, but I think health is certainly very actionable. Um, And I think having patients sort of understand that, looking at the timeline for sperm production and, you know, real things that they can do, whether it's initiate an exercise program, you know, change their diet um, and hopefully, you know, make, make positive impacts in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree with you 100% that, you know, when we're talking about health of the offspring or health of the embryo, we are almost always first thinking of maternal factors and then thinking of paternal factors. I was excited that the CDC started collecting data on paternal factors. So as you know, the CDC has had this data collection program called PRAMS going for a long time where they collect all sorts of information about maternal risk factors and they started collecting uh, paternal uh, factors in about, I think, 2019. So hopefully in the next few years, we'll start to see more publications come out about all of the paternal behaviors and paternal habits and how that modifies reproductive outcomes. And I'm hoping that will help, you know, educate physicians, patients, the general community about the importance of paternal contribution to um, health of the offspring. What are you uh, telling your patients when they ask you whether genetic testing is indicated for uh, figuring out whether paternal risk factors are going to affect their children? That's a common question that I will get from my patients, whether there is additional testing that they should undergo to make sure that there are no additional risks to their future baby. Yeah. Actually, so I just wanted to hop on to that, uh, your CDC point for one, for a brief second. So I it certainly, um, I want to congratulate the CDC on that. I mean, I think in the last, you know, probably, you know, 20 years or so, they've really kind of updated thinking about, you know, male reproduction, like the National Survey of Family Growth, which looks at fertility, um, you know, parenthood, contraception in the United States it used to be a female only survey. And then in 2002, they also had a male component as well. And they've continued that on. And then, as you know, you know, the all the IVF cycles in the United States are captured and reported to the CDC. And just recently they started looking at male variables, you know, before there was really nothing collected. Now they've started doing age and a little bit more about semen quality health conditions of the, of the male partner. So I think that's all, you know, great, um, you know, to the, you know, to the advance and just sort of understanding of reproduction in general. And it's really a credit to the CDC that they've started to collect that. Now, back to the question about, you know, genetic testing. So I think it's, you know, challenging. There's not a lot that we necessarily test for, you know, during IVF cycles, you know, from male component. Now, certainly if, you know, either of the the parents have a known genetic condition, you know, that could be tested for to prevent transmission. And there are certainly some conditions that we test for 
you know, in the fathers, you know, somewhat routinely, like for men with very low sperm counts, we can look for, um, you know, uh, we do a karyotype to look for aneuploidy. We can look at the Y chromosome to see if there's any microdeletions present. You know, in some some cases, we'll do cystic fibrosis uh, screening as well. Um, so those are conditions that can be, you know, that we, we can check for. Um, but otherwise, sort of routine genetic testing that we do for an embryo would largely be related to aneuploidy. And most aneuploidy is probably maternal in origin, although I think there's maybe 10% or somewhere around that is paternal. So I think you know, certainly it's not unreasonable to think about that. Um, but I think, you know, for some of these rare conditions, like that we talked about, these rare paternal um, age-related conditions, there's not genetic testing that's really done for that. Well, thanks so much, Mike. I really enjoyed, you know, getting into the details of um, some of those questions today. Uh, any parting thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of the key points I would say is that, you know, when we think about the man and probably, and I think the, the woman as well, you know, reproduction and health are really very much intertwined. I think there are certainly associations between fertility and later health, but I think, you know, it's a reciprocal relationship. So when you think about health, it also impacts fertility. Um, and there's a lot of different conditions that we can think about that affect that. And I think I would say, depending on who's watching this or listening to this podcast, you know, talk to your provider, talk to your patients about this association. Absolutely. I second that 100%. And um, looking forward to reading more about this in the literature in the coming months and years. Thank you so much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Thank you. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.